It is great to have so many of you with us. I kind of agree with Mike. I think we are going to keep this baptism tradition going. If you've been baptized before, too bad. We're going to re-baptize the entire congregation. It's great to have so many guests with us here. We are looking forward to that. But I realize in what might feel like a bait and switch, those of you who are guests are going to be walking with us through our membership course. And this being the final session of our membership course, I hate to tell you, but you're all going to be deputized as members of our church at the end of the service. And so we probably should have let you know about that before this. But here we are. In my family, uh, when Christine does the cooking, everyone's pretty thrilled. When Christine is unavailable to do the cooking and Zoe is not available or one of the other kids, well, dad gets to, you know, sort of step up to the plate. And I have a bit of a reputation for kind of three things, Uh, omelets and for soup and for casseroles, Um, primarily because any one of those three dishes allows me to go into the refrigerator, see what it seems like has been there for a little bit too long and create a dish out of it. So if I think that, oh, the peppers are going bad, we're going to have some peppers in the omelets. If it seems as though this is kind of going away, and it hasn't really gained me the best, you know, sort of reputation as a cook. And I don't know everything that will be said at the point of my funeral, but I am positive that one thing that will be shared over the course of that time of mourning my loss will be the coffee creamer macaroni and cheese that I serve to my kids. Because, let's think through the logic of this with me. Uh, Christine and I were going out. We had a babysitter for our children, and I needed to make macaroni and cheese so that they could have, right? We had the butter. We had the macaroni and cheese. We had the fake powdered cheese that goes with it. And we had no milk. What would you do? I will tell you what not to do. Do not use flavored coffee creamer as a substitute for milk. It seemed like a great idea to me at the moment until Christine and I were at the the restaurant where we were enjoying our date, and I got a call from the babysitter who was almost in tears because all the other kids were in tears because I had said they need to eat their macaroni and cheese. And after the first bite, it was pretty obvious. Coffee creamer, macaroni, and cheese is just not the way to go. That said, I did a better job of throwing together random ingredients than you probably will do because I have a lot of experience, which is what prepares me to lead a message today on worship, leadership, membership, and baptism. So, coffee, creamer, macaroni, and cheese, casseroles, sermon, here we are. We're going to primarily talk about two things in our uh, fifth chapter of our membership course. For those of you who are guests. This is what we've been doing. Normally, we're in a book of the Bible. That's the way that we spend probably 95% of our Sundays is going passage by passage through a text. And yet, um, we thought it would be wise for us as a church, because so much has happened in the life of our congregation, that since we had a group of people that wanted to join and we were going to be taking them through this, we thought, let's, let's all do it together. And so we've taken our membership course and made it a re-membership course for some folks so that we can all remember things. And the reason we, we linked together um, in, this, in chapter 5, um, worship and leadership, is probably because they were the last two things that we needed to cover. And so here we are. But also because of a quote that we're going to switch around that John Piper has thrown out there about missions. 
He says, missions exists because worship doesn't. It's a good quote. Why is it that the church and why is it that Christians have the responsibility to extend the good news that the king has come? It's because in far too many corners of the globe, worship does not exist. People are worshiping stuff, but not the creator. And in order for the creator to get his his due place in every society, it's the obligation of Christians to extend that good news into every corner of the globe. Missions exist because worship doesn't. To borrow that phrase and kind of mash these two topics together for us, I think we'd say the same thing. Leadership at Trinity Church exists because worship doesn't. It's too easy if we all are honest that if we aren't intentional about the course of our lives, and if we collectively aren't intentional about the direction of our church, we're not going to drift toward exalting God. We're instead going to drift, like the rest of society, towards what's right in our eyes, towards what we feel, towards what's popular at the moment. There's a lot of different things pulling on us. And it reminds me, if you'd open up your books, to, uh, and if you don't have a book, if you're a guest and you, you realize you don't really want to join our church, it's okay. We've got all of them up on the slide behind me here. But in our first, uh, kind of a first quote, this is a dialogue between Alice and the Cheshire Cat in, uh, in Alice in Wonderland. And Alice says, would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? Well, that depends a good deal on where you want to get to, said the cat. I don't much care where, said Alice. Then it doesn't matter which way you go, said the cat. So long as I get somewhere, Alice added as an explanation. Oh, you're sure to do that, said the cat. If only you walk long enough. And in the Western church, which we're probably a decent summary of, worship is kind of like that. We can take the time of singing, the time where we unite the powerful force of music with the powerful impulse to worship something. And we're going to head somewhere with that time. Our songs will do something. And because they're tied to music, a very powerful force kind of across every age range and every society, it's going to accomplish something. But we need to be clear about whom we're trying to worship and what we're trying to do when we walk through that process. Another quote from John Piper at the bottom of that page reads like this. The assembly of the redeemed, the company of the saints, the children of God are more significant in world history than any other group, organization, or nation. The United States of America compares to the church of Jesus Christ like a speck of dust compares to the sun. The drama of international relations compares to the mission of the church like a kindergarten, kindergarten riddle compares to Hamlet or King Lear and all the pomp of May Day in Red Square and the pageantry of New Year's, New Year's at Pasadena fade into a formless gray against the splendor of the bride of Christ. The gates of Hades, the powers of death, will prevail against every institution but one, the church. So lift up your eyes, O Christians. You belong to a society that will never cease, to the apple of God's eye, to the external, or sorry, to the eternal and cosmic church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lately, it has not been uncommon to ask the question of where is society headed? And if 
you've interacted with me over these last months, years, really. It's, it's kind of adding up to. You know, I've been less concerned, at least from the pulpit, been less concerned about trying to answer the question of where society is going in general and much more riveted on the question of where our society, the society and culture, not of our country, that's a force to be sure, and one we can influence to be sure, but the one that I think we have more direct responsibility for is the question is where is the culture of our church going? Where is our society headed as a local church? And so that's why we've titled Lesson 5 here, The Purposeful Church. Now, as we've done every week, I want to just depart from this and look at one passage. And let me just return to the one that we looked at last week. This is Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. I'm going to read it all for you. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if, any, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect, har- perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verses 12 through 16. Lots of truths. We're holy and we're beloved by God. We're chosen and we belong to him. Lots of commands that we're to exemplify. And we talked about the bulk of this text last week. But what's been interesting for me over 15 years of leading our church is how much attention one word gets. Singing. Isn't it interesting what music does Holy and sacred music, to be sure, but just music in general. Think of what a powerful force music really is. There was a commercial for the NFL that I enjoyed. It was a guy who was uh, apparently crashing in a hospital. He was not doing well. His vital signs were going down, and the doctors around him were panicked. And an intern walks in with an old Walkman and a pair of headphones, puts them on over top of the guy, pushes the button, and it goes, bum, 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 bum. And all of a sudden, beep, 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 beep. The guy kind of wakes up again. If you saw Coco, there's a slightly different, you know, analogy for you if you're not into the NFL. Grandma Coco can't remember anything, right? Until what happens? Her grandson comes along and sings a song from her youth, and it, it's a powerful force that, that brings her back. Civil War reenactments have music all over the place. Battles happening and direction being given through music. A a tired army trying to march from one field to the next and they're being roused and and they settle into camp and the general arrives and there's a separate song for that and at the end everyone's tired and there's soothing music being played over the camp. It's one of the things that struck me during the movie Gettysburg was just how much music rallied or soothed or motivated It's just music in general is a powerful force. In some ways, you could even define societies and cultures 
by a lot of different things, but what they like in their music is one way that you could define them. And so when we talk about music in the church, we have to realize we're dealing with almost like nuclear material. Stuff that has incredible force that can be used for good and that also can be used for bad. And like the cat's point to Alice, if we're not clear where we're trying to go when we sing about God, we can be doing some real damage when we're trying to accomplish something really good. That's why for at least the time that I am aware of the history of our church, we've tried to be very aware of what the community and worship is doing together. So if you flip your page, we're going to start into some of our blanks. We're going to start at the the page that says community and worship. And let me read for you that top paragraph. Like many other words we've discussed together in this study, worship is a word that Christians have used to describe everything from a way of life to a gathering of believers to a type of music. And so the question is, what is what is the, the New Testament? What does the Bible generally teach about worship? And if you start in the Old Testament, it's, interestingly enough, you don't hear a song mentioned in the pages of Scripture until the Israelites are redeemed from, ex, uh, from, uh, from Egypt. When they're in Exodus 15, that's the first time worship is kind of tied to singing. Before that, worshiping God is something very different. It's calling on the name of the Lord. It's got sacrifices. There's altars. There's giving God attention, and that's what worship looks like. But it's not really wed to singing until they're in Exodus 15. In fact, when the Israelites arrive at Mount Sinai then, what you find later is that their worship is kind of defined by their obedience. So the law is given. If you're going to worship God, you're going to obey him. And secondly, it's how you come and meet with him. And so what's given at Mount Sinai? Not a series of songs, but a series of instructions. How to follow the Lord and how to meet with him. So there's regulations about the tabernacle and about the priests. God is to be worshipped and revered. All the, the idolatry that they knew growing up as slaves is to be forgotten. And obedience and meeting with God and at this point, really no sense of what we're singing. It's not, in fact, until the monarchy later on that we find that music gets to be tied to this. And it's through the role probably that you would think of, of King David, who wrote both before and during his kingship so many different songs. And so music is then used in worship, it's in prophecy, it's in celebration. And this sense of how we got to this point that music is the primary way that we worship God it, it's helpful, but do you understand that according to just generations of those who followed God, it hasn't always been defined by singing. That isn't to say we're not to sing, but it does mean that we ought to keep singing somewhat in, in priority in terms of what we think about what it means to actually worship God and to give him, him credit and to give him attention. In fact, there would be four aspects you'd see to worship there on that page. Worship involves submission to God. Worship requires sacrifice for God. It demands service of God. And it produces celebration before God. But those three words are the ones that I guess I'm trying to sort of accent from the very beginning. That to worship God, as we think of primarily being the celebratory kind of work, that's true. But it's the end of a process that begins with submission and sacrifice and service. 
In fact, the word worship, if you tried to translate it from the Old Testament, it's, it's derived really from a word that one of the primary words is just talking about kneeling down before God. That seems to accent those first three words as opposed to the idea of celebration. Then in the New Testament, something completely different seems to happen because Israel through all the Old Testament is riveted on coming to one place to worship the God who kind of lives there. But what we find is that worship is very different than that. Think of the two passages that were read for us this morning. Psalm 95, sorry, Stephen, gave you the wrong reference there. But Psalm 95 calls for us to come before God and to celebrate who he is, to sing to him. But then the passage that Olivia read said that it's our spiritual worship has very little to do with the words that we proclaim to a melody. They have everything to do with the way that we behave. The Colossians 3 passage we just looked at together kind of has the same sort of proportionality, doesn't it? What does it mean to be a worshipful community that puts God first? It has a lot to do with the way we treat each other, the way we view ourselves, the way we use our words. And then we get to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs of gratitude in our hearts to God. So what we get from this is then that uh, in the New Testament, look at these three points as well. There's a temple, but it's replaced by Jesus. So Jesus says, actually, when he's up around the temple, man, this thing's going to be torn down. But the real temple could be rebuilt in three days. It's a a paradigm-shifting reality that a man has come and become more important than the temple. Especially if you went all the way back into the Old Testament, a moment where a powerful king, a reforming king, decided he was more important than what was going on and decided to usurp the role of a priest and take it on for himself. Went into the temple to actually offer incense and the priests were pretty shaken because he wasn't supposed to be there. He's not related to the right people in order to be able to do that. In other words, the king is never bigger than the temple. And God sort of backed up that point because when he came out of the temple, he was just covered in leprosy. The temple was never supposed to be about one person until the one person arrived. And Jesus said, everything you've tried to accomplish through your temple That's me from now on. And if you'd think that Jesus was kind of a lunatic, making claims a little bit bigger than what he could deliver on, at the moment of his death, when the curtain of the temple that divided people from the most sacred places of God's presence is ripped from top to bottom, God backs up exactly the point Jesus is making. My presence is no longer going to be contained to one spot. What's been done through this one is the ultimate sacrifice. This is the one who's the ultimate priest. And what you've been trying to do in coming to the temple can only not be accomplished through a building anymore. It only is accomplished through you knowing this one individual. The problem is he left. So what's supposed to happen after that? Well, Jesus said, it's good for me to go away because when I go, I'm going to send my spirit. And then the transition that's happened from a building to me is now actually going to happen from me to my followers. The way that God's spirit was on me in a powerful way from my baptism on. The reason Jesus said, I'm going to do some impressive stuff, but you're going to do something even more impressive is that Jesus was contained in one body. But now his spirit is going to be scattered over all of his followers. And those people get to take the temple of God with them wherever they go. 
Do you realize that, believer, that if you are a, uh, those who are joined to Jesus and whose spirit is with you, you're accomplishing wherever you went this last week what the temple of God accomplished in the Old Testament. You were carrying the presence of God with you. You were carrying with you an indication of what it means for sacrifice to be accomplished on mankind's behalf. You and your testimony, you and your life, you and your attitude, which is countercultural from everything else, you are now the temple of God. And so we could say Jesus is the temple. We could also say that our bodies are the temple. And then like coals of a fire that are all brought together and kindled up, what we do when we gather is a unique way that God has said he makes his presence known in the world. And so not only is Jesus the temple, not only are our bodies a temple, but the church itself, the gathered community of saints, is God's temple. But not because of the building. It's because of us being gathered together. Now, the sermon should end there, or we should spend a lot of time just focusing on that mind-blowing reality and how easy it is for us to go back to a locational model of what we think about where God is. Is God in this building? When you guys leave, not really any more than he's anywhere else. That's hard for us to think about because it's very easy for us to think of places of worship. Or us to think about this through a temple in the Old Testament kind of model. That's not the way that we at Trinity Church think about this building. The presence of God came with you when you walked in here today. In a unique and in a concentrated way. The God who is omnipresent and everywhere concentrates the, the experience of his presence. When you came in here together and when you leave here, you carry him with you. Let's talk about the implications then for what that ought to be. All of that we just talked about, what are some implications for a worshiping church? The first is this, that we worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus, when talking with the woman at the well, was having a debate with her about her life, about whether her life was being lived in worship and reverence to God, and she wanted to talk about a place. I'm a Samaritan. I like the hill in Samaria. You're a Jew. You like the hill down in Judea. So is it Jerusalem that's supposed to be the place of worship, or is it supposed to be our place that the place of worship? You want this water from this well right here, right? Our ancestor Jacob dug this. This is in our land. This indicates something about our hill, right? And Jesus says, it's actually not about that anymore. It's not about locations. It's not about hills. It's about spirit, and it's about truth. The second thing that we get from this, though, is that we also worship a Trinitarian God. Let me read for you the two points there. As such, God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are involved in and worthy of attention when we are called to be a worshiping church. Additionally, the focal point of our worship should be directed by the ways in which each member of the Godhead steers our worship. Now, just like what's going to happen in baptism. See what I'm doing with the casserole thing here for a second? We're not going to create something to be true in Stephen or Olivia. These waters are warm, I will say, for the first time in Trinity's history. And I will congratulate Keith Schifano, who took great ridicule, apparently, from Curtis Pennock. 
When he brought out a heater about this big and said it was going to heat up that body of water, which was 46 degrees when we were putting it in from the hose. I was trying to move things around and my hands were getting numb. I was so cold. And Keith, remembering the fact that we did our last baptism in the parking lot in November, said no more of this. And he decided to bring out a tiny fish tank heater for us or whatever this thing was. And none of us thought it was going to work. But Keith, kudos, my friend. We have warm water. This is wonderful. That warm water is so important that when you get into it, you're saved. Now, that's not the way the water works. Despite whether it's cold or whether it's warm, it has no magical powers to create anything. Instead, what it does is it affirms. Now, it affirms in a powerful way that is really hard when you take the entire weight of biblical teaching about it to understand what's going on. In some cases, you're reading passages that talk about this being a reflection of an inner reality. And that's what we believe about sacraments here. When we take communion, we don't think that that saves you. When we get baptized, we don't think that that saves you. But we do think that it affirms something that is so vital to you being saved that it's kind of like Lazarus being raised from the grave and then allowed to eat and breathe afterwards. If he was brought to life but never got to eat and never got to breathe, he wouldn't really be alive that long, would he? There's something that brings us to life and there's something that keeps us alive. Salvation in the Bible kind of works the same way. There's the initial moment of being saved and there's the ongoing saving work that keeps us saved until the end. And we view baptism in that way. It doesn't create a reality but our participation in it somehow sustains that reality. And so in that way, we look at baptism as a saving, though not in an initial way, but more in a sustaining way, kind of reality. Back to worship. Worship is the same way, guys. You don't come here and sing songs that create faith in your heart. If you live the entire week as though God doesn't matter, you coming in here and singing songs is not like sort of a sort of confession act that wipes out other realities. That's why you can really say that people who are going to enjoy God in heaven are those that enjoy him on earth. There's a sanctifying element to what worship does. It helps us to confess ways in which we weren't living for God this last week. It reminds us of realities that we want to aspire to in this next week. In other words, it calls us out of the doldrums of our lives. But just like baptism, coming in here and singing songs doesn't change realities. It, It actually gives you an opportunity to express them. So that's why the third point here is that we worship in overflow. The words that you sing ought to come out of realities that have been true before you started to sing them. Even if you didn't do the greatest job of living up to them. And they remind you that these things are important. There is a saving and sustaining work. Nothing about worship allows us to live one way and sing in another. Worship is to be an entire way of beginning, of of life beginning as an inner experience. In that sense, though, when we come to sing, we think oftentimes about our singing to God. And that's true. Most of our songs have him as the object. But there's something that happens, and this is part of the reason I love sitting in the front of the church. The number of Sundays that I come and think, oh, these poor people have to listen to this message. Or what am I doing coming up to stand in front of the church? Because my life was not great this last week. 
I think about the number of ways that I can be discouraged about the discrepancy between what I'm singing and what, what I'm living. And then I hear you. I hear you behind me singing, and I know some of your stories, and I know some of your struggles, and I still hear your words. And I think, yeah, that, that's true. They're singing to God. They're not singing to me. But in you singing to God, you're singing for me, kind of. Just like when you're singing to God, you're singing for your own soul. There is an overflowing element of what worship is, that the realities that are true inside, if we want them to be stronger and to burn brighter, yes, as we sing them, we aspire to something, and that motivates us to the next week. But I want you to know that also motivates me to the next week, to hear you singing. And so point D is we worship for edification. We don't, God doesn't need our songs. He, he gets them, but what he accomplishes through them is the edification of our souls as we sing, but also the other edification of our brothers and sisters. We are encouraging and building them up all with point E that we're worshiping ultimately in anticipation. Can you imagine the moment when songs will never grow old? Can you imagine the moment when you sing and your life has been an exact accord with the words you're proclaiming through your songs? Don't you long for that day when you're not such a mess? Don't you long for that day when it's, it's not so much the words of music and whether or not this got right or that got right or there was a spelling error on the slide or all the different things that can distract us because we're just so amazed at who God is that we want to sing and keep singing and keep singing and keep living. That's the day I look forward to. And when we come and we gather, we remind each other that's what it is to worship God. We worship in anticipation. So let me give you a definition. This is on to the next page. A definition for a worshiping church. I'm going to try to move through this kind of quickly. A definition for a worshiping church, at least as we've tried to nail it down here at Trinity, is to say that God-honoring worship is our wholehearted response to God's self-revelation in ways which please him and which he alone makes possible. It's a pretty good quote, right? It's because Bob Coughlin said it, and I didn't. I'm just, I'm just repeating him. It's a guy that we have known over our history as a church, works for Sovereign Grace Churches right now as their leader of worship. And some of the things that he's written and the way that he's led the organization has been some of the stuff that's motivated me the most as I think about what it means to worship God. But let's just take those four, four elements of that real quickly. God-honoring worship is our wholehearted response. That makes sense, right? We're not looking to hold part of us back. We're not trying to figure out a way that we can sort of give God a little bit, but hang on to this part of my life. It's, it's entirely open-handed before God. Where we say, this is my entire heart. It is yours. That's our response, not to the way we feel. It's our response, not to our perceived, you know, kind of ranking and stratus around here. I'm one of the more respected members. I'm one of the less respected members. That's, that's not what we're responding to at all. It's not our response to how well your week went. It's not that. It is our response to God's self-revelation. God has said, this is who I am and his people worship. That's what it means for us to listen to God. 
Not that we get an A on the test, not that we remember all the details, but that our hearts are are brought into a state of worship because we realize there is no other being like this God that I know. I don't deserve to know him, and he's made himself known to me. And so our response to his self-revelation is done in ways which please him and which he alone makes possible. Now, if you realize that that's what we're aiming at as our goal, we do want to make sure that what happens here on the stage isn't distracting. We want to make sure that there's enough volume that comes when we're singing so that it helps you to sing but not overwhelms you. We want to make sure that the people that are up here singing are able to sing somewhat in a way that you can follow. But the pure excellence isn't really our goal. And I'm not saying that in a way that either Keith or Phil or other worship leaders or members of our team would find, I I hope, uh, offensive. I think that we've got a pretty good keyboardist and drummer, and I'm kind of, they're my favorite members of the worship team, you know? But at the same time, though we don't want to be distractions, what this is intended to do is to highlight one reality. Yours is the primary instrument when we sing. It is your voice that matters most in this church. This is not to be a concert, though concert mentalities have dominated worship teaching over the last decades. This isn't supposed to, just like this isn't supposed to be a TED Talk. Concerts and TED Talks, that's kind of what churches have devolved into in some ways. And we say we want to aspire to something better. We want to do as much as is necessary and no more so that the congregation comes in and says, I want, I want to pour my love for God out into these words. As we've said in a lot of different ways, if you think of ways we can do that better, please help us out. See Keith, that's one of the ways that he is an elder, an elder candidate here right now, is trying to help lead us. And so if you have ways that you think you could help, please do. But this is our aim. Not an excellent concert-like setting that you can come and enjoy and be amazed by, but something that invites you to sing and lift your voice as a part of the primary unified instrument of worship here. That said, if you look to the next page where we talk about expressions of a worshiping community, there's just two that I want to draw your attention to that we're going to pursue. Don't worry. It's not shouting and dancing. It's actually silence and bowing down. We're not the most lively congregation. It's okay. I'm not going to force us into some sort of dancing around the church kind of experience. That said... If what we're singing motivates you, it's okay to use your body a little bit to be able to enjoy it. If you don't have the best voice, it doesn't really matter. I don't, from what I understand in scripture, the, the call to sing isn't just given to the musical. Now, the call to play should be helpful, so maybe, you know, avoid bringing your drums into the back. But those of you who've been around for, for a while remember Ruthie. Ruthie was a woman with limited musical skill, but she would always sit in the front row and she either brought a little cymbals or a little bell at times that she would play. 
It was a fantastic reminder to me of the way that we are all doing this together. We're not trying to cut an album here. We're not trying to produce something that's going to just change the shape of worship in the United States for generations to come. We're trying to engage the congregation and in magnifying God. But two ways we can do that that we're going to explore probably moving forward are what it means at some points to be silent and what it means to be submitted. And those are realities we can explore when we're out, but so that we don't forget about them, they may be ways that you'll see us thinking about our gathered time together as well. Anybody find their phone there? (laughs) Fantastic. It is so good having little kids in with us. I still think one of my favorite moments was whenever I said, hey, Siri, and somebody's phone responded in the congregation. There's a question at the bottom of that page there that I want you to think through. What other expressions of worship might we employ together? I don't know what all of you are doing in in small group settings, but if you're talking at some points about the direction our church is headed, this is a good question to pursue together. What would it look like to encourage worship in the church, especially as you think about how we're aiming to lead? For sake of time, I'm going to skip the next page. I'm going to send those blanks home as part of the email that goes out because I want to move to that. uh, I want to revisit that quote from the beginning that leadership in Trinity exists because worship doesn't. Everything else that we've done in this series has largely been kind of fill in the blank format to be able to talk you through. The leadership and the structure of our church is tricky to be able to describe, not because it's all that creative, but because it has some nuances. So essentially, you're going to get some homework. If you're looking to pursue membership here, please read the next couple pages that are there in your book. Please read the affirmations that are there for members. Please read the charges that we give to our members, to our deacons, and to our elders. It's what we expect of those who lead. But if you want the best summary, I think, of what it means for us to have leadership within the church, you could maybe say it this way, and this is right from the top of that page. God leads his people from his word through the elders with the congregation. Let me give you an example of what I mean. If I were to say, who's the leader At Trinity Church, you might be tempted to say Darren because my role is called lead elder. But if you functionally talked about how leadership happens at our church, I think you'd see that I'm leading a lot less of what's going on than you might originally think. Look at various ministries and impulses that have happened in the church, and the more you trace them, you might see that these aren't just all Darren's ideas. But Brad and Brian, Mike and Keith, I'm going to read a list of names here, and if I don't read yours, please don't be offended. That's my leadership for the moment. But I will say that you'd potentially feel leadership from Anne and Sue, Lily, Zoe, Barb, Alicia, Ryan, Steve, Donna, Aldo, Bill, Leslie, Roman, Monica, Curtis, Jess. If you went into the past, Tracy, Christine, Kim, Leslie. I think I said Leslie before. I'm saying Leslie again because she was just talking about VBS. 
Do you know how little I know about what's going to happen with VBS? It's because I'm not leading it. And though nobody who's leading here is necessarily trying to do it in rebellion against the lead elder, at least not as I've found out so far. I love this phrase. Because I think that what's happening through all of that is that God is leading us through his, from his word. He's leading us through the elders and he's leading us with the broad congregation to the sense that if I were to say, let me read off a list of the leaders here at the church that have actually shaped the course of ministry here, I'd probably just be going through the membership roster and saying, these are the folks that have led and influenced and moved. And in a way we haven't been able to do in a while I want to be able to say thank you to Diane. Those of you know, Diane stepped back due to just a number of things that are going on, primary among them being the fact that she lives about 90 to 120 minutes away from us most of the time during the week. Those of you who know how many transitions and how many different hurdles our church has had to clear in these last probably five years and was trying to think about not just who served us, but who led us with a heart of a servant and with humility, you'd have to tell Diane as one of the lead characters of our story, wouldn't you? Diane, we thank you for the way you serve God here. Now, Eric, add a boy as well. But... <laughs> You got that knife a little while back, man. So, you know, we're, we're good on that. Guys, I would like to talk with you more about leadership, but primarily the one that I want to be able to talk with are those that are thinking of joining. So the next steps from here, next ingredient in this casserole of this message is membership. Coming to the end of lesson five. This is the material I would have taught you through. If you were looking to join, we would have done it at another point in time, but we've done it like this. The next step, though, now is for you. If what you'd like to do is to join our church, please reach out to me and let me know. We're hoping to have, and Mark, we're going to have to skip ahead to kind of the very end. We're hoping to have a big day on May the 1st. We've moved our momentum meeting because we realize most of our crew folks after their week of finals are going to be gone. So we're not going to do it on May the 8th or else we'd have to Zoom all of you guys in. But more than that, we realize this is also a Sunday right before your finals. So, you know, but you got a little bit of time. Save the date. So momentum's going to be on May the 1st. But more than just that, what we're hoping to do is start the first picnic of our, our summer season. So we're going to have one on May the 1st and then the first Sundays in June, July, and August as well. But more than that, what we're hoping to do is have a big reception afterwards where we can welcome in everyone who wants to say, I'd like to make Trinity Church home. What that means, given that today is April the 3rd, and that's May the 1st, is you've got a few weeks to get back to me. Think through everything that we've presented. Bring some of your questions. Ask a little bit of how the church really does function in some ways that we've addressed and maybe not thoroughly answered. And I or one of the elders would be glad to sit down with you and talk about what it would mean for you to take the next steps of formally joining the church. One of those steps, here's the fourth ingredient in your casserole, is to be baptized. 
And so this conversation about membership actually started a long while ago with some of the crew folks. And I mentioned to them that in trying to join the church, one of the symbols that we ask for, just like anyone who'd be drafted into a new NFL team or who's traded from one to the other, doesn't usually wear the old uniform that they used to be identified by, but instead puts on a different uniform. Not having uniforms around here, One of the physical ways that God's asked his people to identify with his kingdom is through the sacrament of baptism. This ordinance, like I said before, doesn't create something, but it affirms it in such a real way that it identifies God's saving work, not simply with our souls, but also with our bodies. It's a wonderful reminder as our bodies are starting to break down that God's salvation work is going to include even our physical makeup. Here's what we affirm in baptism. It's a passage that I've went through, I've gone through with everyone who's going to be baptized over these next couple weeks. And it's a passage that really forms the basis of the testimony that you're going to hear from Stephen and Olivia after we take some time to sing. This comes from Romans 6. I'm going to read it once before we sing. Worship team, you can come back up while I'm reading this. Then we're going to sing a couple songs together. Then I'm going to come back and I'm going to read it again. But in Romans 1 through 5, Paul's talked about the amazing work of saving people. And in Romans chapter 6, 1, he says, well, what should we say then? If God is so good at forgiving sin, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No, by no means, he says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And he gives this example. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the way that you are at work. And Lord, I thank you for what we've seen over these last five weeks about how we aim to to draw our church into alignment with what you've revealed about yourself and how we can respond together. And Father, the question of who we count as most worthy is probably one of the most significant questions about us. Both us as a church and each of us individually. So Lord, we thank you for for creating music, for creating the capacity to sing within us, for giving us hearts that resonate with music. And Lord, I thank you for redeeming it. Thank you for these songs we're going to sing. And I pray, Lord, lift our souls to you. Remind us of who you are once again through these songs. And then, Lord, I pray, Would you continue the work you've been doing of galvanizing your church so that we wouldn't just sing to your glory, but we'd live for it. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.